Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, Rideau Fall. The vetting process that was in place was followed, uh, but uh, obviously we're going to also look at uh, ways we can strengthen and improve the vetting process for high-level appointments. The sudden resignation of the Governor General raises big questions. How toxic was it inside Rideau Hall? When will Canadians find out what really drove Julie Payette to leave? And did the government ignore warning signs when they appointed her in the first place? The man who oversaw that explosive report, the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc, joins us with details. And then, how will the government begin the process of finding a successor? The former Heritage Minister James Moore, who helped pick the last Governor General, weighs in. Then, roll out, run out. Despite this bump on the road, Pfizer continues to assure us that they're on track to meet their total, the total allocation of 4 million doses uh, to Canada by the end of March. No Pfizer vaccines for Canada next week, and the vaccine shortages will be worse than expected. How will this impact the provincial vaccine rollout? Will this affect the government's target of vaccinating all Canadians by September? The man in charge of Ontario's vaccine strategy, retired General Rick Hillier, joins us with the latest. And then, trade war? If, however, the U.S. government refuses uh, to open the door to a constructive and respectful dialogue about these issues, then it is clear that the government of Canada must impose meaningful trade and economic sanctions. President Biden kills the Keystone XL pipeline. Why do some premiers now want Canada to start a trade war? Should Canada hit back? And how will Canada respond to Biden's Buy American plan? Alberta Premier Jason Kenney makes the case for sanctions this morning, and we get the government's response from the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. People who've worked in Rideau Hall uh, over uh, the past uh, years have uh, done so in sometimes difficult circumstances, and we thank them deeply uh, for their work, and we'll continue to ensure that everyone uh, who works uh, for the government or anywhere in Canada uh, continues to have uh, the safe and secure workplaces. Well, she rose like a rocket and she fell just as hard. Julie Payette, the 29th Governor General, resigned suddenly before a damning report about harassment and bullying inside Rideau Hall was actually made public. It's a stunning end to Julie Payette's career. She was a star in the truest sense, an astronaut an engineer, a musician, fluent in six languages. When she was appointed to the job three and a half years ago, the light beaming from her accomplishments blinded the prime minister. And so instead of vetting her properly, the Trudeau government passed, uh, bypassed a nonpartisan committee and recommended her to the queen. They never found out about a series of allegations of harassment against Payette in her former job, such as at the Canadian Science Centre. It was clearly a mistaken appointment. So now what? When will this report about what went on inside Rideau Hall become public and will a new Governor General actually be selected? Talk about all that and more. We're joined by the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister and the person overseeing that report, Dominic LeBlanc. Minister, always good to have you on the program. The public hasn't seen this report yet. Uh, you have. What words would you use to describe the culture inside Rideau Hall under Julie Payette? Uh, I think, Evan, it was a workplace that was clearly uh, inappropriate. It was, uh, it was not a safe and secure workplace. Uh, we've seen words used uh, that talk about a toxic or a poisonous workplace. Um, the report painted a very stark picture 
Uh, and uh, those allegations were, were, were serious and they were wide-ranging. Um, and the Prime Minister has said from the beginning that under no circumstance is such a workplace acceptable for any Canadian. And the women and men who work at Rideau Hall are doing an extraordinary job. I have the privilege of knowing some of them probably from when my father was there years ago. Um, so we, we acted swiftly and uh, we had this independent review uh, look at the workplace and the Governor General submitted uh, her resignation on Thursday. When will Canadians get to see this report for themselves? We will, of course, uh, make public uh, a version of the report once the lawyers at the Department of Justice review it in terms of privacy. Uh, these were interviews that were conducted with a, an expectation and an undertaking of confidentiality by the independent reviewer. Um, and the federal privacy laws apply. So the lawyers are right now finalizing and translating a, a version of the report that can properly be made public. Uh, and as soon as it's available in the coming days, I would expect that that it's public. So uh, we're not we're not going to refuse to release the report. We're going to respect the law that protects these employees' privacy and release uh, everything that we possibly can as quickly as we can, and it'll be in the next few days. Okay, so we the Canadian the public will be able to see this report with redacting the names and respecting privacy, see this report this week. How much did the report cost uh, the government to make? So the, the final cost of the report, Evan, uh, I think is $391,000, so close to $400,000 uh, will be the, uh, the ultimate bill uh, for, uh, for the independent experts. Uh, and it's a national firm called Quintet with experience across the country in this kind of complicated workplace review. Uh, so the report will have ended up costing about $391,000. Okay, that's not the only cost uh, for Canadians now. Uh, Julie Payette served three and a half years, which is about half of a normal term. She's now entitled to a full pension, and governor generals are also entitled to a lot of travel perks and other perks. The government, I understand, could do nothing about the pension. She's going to get this index pension. Will your government try to roll back or limit the travel perks she now gets? So, uh, obviously, as you say, the, the retirement benefits are prescribed by law. They are literally in a statute in a law uh, that gives her the retirement benefit to which uh, she's eligible. Um, the, other, uh, the other expenses are for uh, functions because one has held that particular job. So if you're invited to speak at a university or at a conference or something, there are some allowances uh, that, uh, that former governors general benefit from. We're always looking at ways to ensure greater transparency and to ensure that that kind of expenditure is in, in the taxpayer's interest. Right. Um, but, but can but you, you can rule that back. Like, you, you guys have discretion over that, as I understand. I mean, look, she's going to get a lifetime pension for three years' work. I think for a lot of Canadians, she never lived in Rideau Hall. She obviously harassed. Uh, There's allegations of harassment and toxicity in there, so she didn't do a great job. Why should taxpayers now fund her to travel around anywhere? So, Evan, that's a very good question. We, she, she resigned a few days ago. Uh, we obviously are always interested in reviewing that kind of expenditure to ensure that it's appropriate. And my colleagues at the Treasury Board will be looking at that. But we haven't, in the, in the hours that followed a resignation, 
looked at that kind of detail, but all of those things will be looked at. Your government bypassed that uh, vice regal selection committee that Stephen Harper set up, uh, and she was just appointed. Um, clearly, there was a lot of red flags. Um, did your government fail to properly vet her? I know there was a vetting process. Clearly, it wasn't good enough. Did you fail to properly vet her? As you said, obviously, the vetting process with respect to this particular appointment uh, was not ideal. It wasn't, uh, in, in terms of rigor, uh, what it should have been. So we're obviously reviewing all of the vetting processes that apply to federal appointments, not only a recommendation to Her Majesty for a, a Governor General, but any federal appointment. We need to double down now and ensure that all of the appropriate vetting is done. All right, I, I got to leave it there this morning. Uh, Mr. Blanc, always great to have you on the program, sir. Thank you. Well, thank you, Evan. Have a great day. Coming up next, the vaccine drought. Pfizer stops all deliveries to Canada this week, and the supply will be limited for weeks afterwards. What will that mean for the jab in your arm? The man in charge of the Ontario vaccine rollout, retired General Rick Hillier, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. I'd be up that guy's yin-yang so far with a firecracker, he wouldn't know what hit him. I'd be saying, where's our vaccines? Other people are getting them. The European Union's getting them. Why not Canada? That's my question to Pfizer. So as of tomorrow, Canada will not be receiving any doses of the Pfizer vaccine, at least for a week. Then supplies will be less than a fifth of what Canada expected just days ago. In other words, the shortages will be worse than you thought for about a month. As Pfizer retools its vaccine plan in Belgium, that's where Canada's supply is manufactured. Now, other countries will also see delays. Still, this has premiers furious as they're being forced to slow down their vaccine rollouts. Now, the Prime Minister finally got on the phone with the CEO of Pfizer, but it didn't result in any more vaccines. Canada will apparently still get its promised 4 million Pfizer doses, but they're all backloaded now to March. How will provinces handle the great vaccine pause? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired General Rick Hillier. He's overseeing the vaccine rollout in the province of Ontario. Uh, General Hillier, first of all, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for your service to the country. Uh, can you give us a sense of how the vaccine uh, stoppage this week is going to impact Ontario and the rollout plan? Well, the rollout is going to be slower. Uh, there's no way around that whatsoever. And what we have to do and what we have been doing, because we've been working this for some days now, is make it as precise as possible for the people in the most vulnerable of circumstances. And right now, that is the people in the long-term care homes, the residents, and when possible, the essential caregivers and the health caregivers and the staff who work with them. And secondly, the second needle is for those who have already received the first using the Pfizer. Beyond that, the capacity to go elsewhere is simply not there yet with the much reduced numbers that we've gotten, particularly of the Pfizer. Is there a chance that you'll run out altogether of the Pfizer? Uh, we're managing it very carefully to make sure we do not, but if there are further interruptions or reductions into uh, further into February, then that is always a real possibility. We're, we're working it really hard. We're staying in close contact with the federal government, obviously, uh, to make sure that the chances of that occurring are reduced to as to the lowest number mm -hmm. possible. Uh, but we're managing it quite literally. We're managing it week by week by week, and, and we're working this piece hard. Is there a way to get more Moderna doses? Ha has your team said, okay, maybe we can make up the shortfall by boosting up our Moderna supplies? We'd love to have more Moderna. I'd love to have a half million or a million Moderna show up in Ontario next week or the week after or sometime in February or early in March 
we're not going to get it. We're not into drug procurement or the vaccine procurement business. That is the role of the federal government. And in fact, I believe the provinces are prohibited from doing that. So we're dependent upon the federal government. We don't see any sign that more Moderna will appear than is mm -hmm. forecast. Uh, we have two deliveries in uh, in February, the first week of February and the last week of February. Half of those have got to be kept for that second needle because the windows between those deliveries are so long. So, General Hillier, it seems like we're going to be get backloaded towards March and they're going to dump that four million, uh, you know, good problems to have. Right. We want a lot of them. Is the system robust enough for a massive dump at the end? of you know february march to get those in the arms like will will that big dump then overwhelm the system or are you ready for that well first of all that's a terrible way to receive the vaccines in one massive number but if that's the only way we can get them we'll take them so the system is not yet robust enough to use those vaccines in a matter of days but by the end of february and early march we will have built that system to be able to do that and in fact that's what we're taking the opportunity now during this I call it an operational pause, even though we have not paused the program, it's just been much reduced. We're taking that opportunity now, working with the public health units, the medical officers of health, and the hospital CEOs to build that capacity using you know, mass vaccination sites, pharmacies, family physicians, and, and mobile vaccination uh, clinics and teams to be able to put right. the numbers through in huge, huge numbers, because that's what we're expecting, what you said, huge numbers in March. We want to be ready for it by then. Yeah, that, that's interesting because, boy, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't, right? Because you don't get enough, the system has to kind of shut down, then you get so many, and then people say, hey, they're sitting in freezers, and you're like, you're throwing up your hands. So are you kind of basically retooling the system for the big dump, as, as we'll call it, and will you get pharmacies or doctor's offices involved maybe earlier than you thought you might need that? We're not retooling. What we're doing is, is just accelerating the planning that we were doing and the preparation that we were doing before, and we want to have that that complete plan ready to go sort of no later than one March in the in the interim, we will continue to to use the vaccines that we have to protect those in the most vulnerable populations. But we're just bringing it forward. We've had the plan now in place for quite a while. Now it's just getting it started up, getting the site sort of dry run, getting the pharmacies brought into the planning and, you know, get the umbrella agreements with them, get the family physicians, many of them vaccinated so they can be the vaccinators without, of course, causing more risk to their patients and the people that would come to them. And so we're turning the machine on a little bit earlier. That's what we're doing. All right, got to leave it there. Retired General Rick Hillier, great to have you on the program talking about that very consequential role. Thank you, sir. Evan, thank you. All right, uh, that's General Rick Hillier. Coming up next, the Biden challenge to Canada. Joe Biden cancels the Keystone XL pipeline, and some premiers are saying it's time to start a trade war with the U.S. Is that really the right way to go? We'll talk to someone who wants those sanctions against the U.S., the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. We'll also speak with the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau, on that relationship and lots more. Stay right here with Question Period. The decision on Keystone XL is a very difficult one for workers in Alberta and Saskatchewan who've had uh, many uh, difficult hits uh, over the past years. Uh, we have been there for them. We will continue to be there for them. Two firsts, one good, one bad. On the first day of the Biden administration, the new president killed the Keystone XL pipeline. That will cost over a thousand jobs and billions of dollars in Canada. Then another first, Justin Trudeau was the first world leader to talk to Joe Biden on Friday night. That call did not change the decision. The pipeline is still dead. 
So, now the Premier of Alberta and others want the Prime Minister to hit back with sanctions against the United States. Is a trade war in the first days of a new administration the right way to go? Talk about that and lots more. We are joined now by the Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. And, uh, Premier, great to have you back on the program. Look, Joe Biden campaigned on killing the, the pipeline. He made it an executive order on his first night. He's not reversing that decision. What kind of sanctions, in your view, would be appropriate to level against the United States, and what would that accomplish? Well, well, what it would accomplish is to stand up for Canada, just like the Trudeau government did when Donald Trump imposed the steel tariffs that he campaigned on. We didn't accept Trump's campaign commitment to rip up NAFTA. Our federal government did the right thing. They fought against that. They got into discussions. Uh, they threatened reprisals if it happened, and they managed to get a decent deal. That's what national governments are supposed to do. And Evan, this is a direct attack against the largest industry in Canada. We export nearly $100 billion of uh, energy to the United States every year. If this precedent is allowed to stand where the U.S. government can retroactively cancel infrastructure that exists, that pipeline is, is already in the ground at the border crossing, it creates a precedent that could be applied to other long-standing pipelines because uh, people around the Biden administration are trying to decommission some of the major pipelines, including the one that fuels the southern Ontario economy. So we need to, to put our foot down and say that this is not acceptable. It's a violation of the investor protection provisions of, of NAFTA. We need to stand up for ourselves. All right. Well, I asked the government about that. First of all, they say that your comparison, the environment minister said, that your comparison of steel and aluminum tariffs is faulty. They said those were ridiculous sanctions uh, and tariffs because they came under Section 232, national security. This is totally different. They say he's opposed this. They remind you that, you know, when Barack Obama first vetoed this in 2015 on the third day of Justin Trudeau's time as prime minister, they also took no sanctions. They supported this, they say, but this is no surprise and there's not much more they can do. What do you say back to them? The problem that the Trudeau government on day two of it, uh, rolled over and surrendered uh, in the face of a presidential veto. What's changed is this is not just a proposed project like it was uh, six years ago. This is a real pipeline that is in the ground. The border crossing is done. Investments have been made on the basis of US, uh, the U.S. approving it. The U.S. has retroactively removed those, uh, th that approval. They're changing the game halfway through. At the very least, what the government of Canada should do is demand compensation uh, for the Canadian investors, uh, TC Energy, and in this case, the government of Alberta, uh, for having made a good faith investment to help to strengthen U.S. energy security. Right. Can you be precise what exact kind of sanctions you want? Ottawa should be, uh, at the very least, demanding uh, compensation for having changed the rules midstream after Canadians invested. Put this on the other, uh, put the shoe on the other foot here. Imagine the United States had invested in infrastructure coming north, Canadian government approves it, then whoops, it, it revokes the approval after money has been spent. That f falls under the investor protection provisions of NAFTA. Uh, and we'll have to go to court if necessary to protect uh, the interests of, of uh, Albertans. We prefer that, that the administration showed some bit of good faith uh, through compensation. But I've been around the cabinet table in Ottawa. You sit down and you look at targeted uh, measures that can get the attention of those in the United States who are undermining our uh, interests. We've done that before. We did it with steel tariffs. We should do it again. Uh, on the call of premiers on Thursday night um, with Justin Trudeau, um, you know, again, sources are saying that you and other premiers 
referred to Joe Biden as a bully, and he could be worse than Donald Trump and more unpredictable. Is, is that true? And are you more concerned that Biden could be worse than Canada than Donald Trump? I, I didn't use those words, and uh, I quite now that the Trump administration is gone. Uh, let me just say, from a Canadian perspective, I'm happy we no longer have to deal with that kind of unpredictability. Uh, an administration that came to office to uh, to rip up NAFTA, and I hope we can uh, congratulate Mr. Biden on his uh, election uh, and the uh, success it represents for American institutions that were under great stress lately. And I really hope that we can have a constructive relationship. It's very unfortunate that he started that. However, with uh, this uh, decision that is uh, clearly uh, against Canada's best interests, and that's not how you treat a friend and an ally, I, that's why I hope they'll take a step back and understand, and I hope the Trudeau government will convey that clearly. Uh, Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Thanks. Thank you, Evan. So what did the Prime Minister say to President Biden on their call on Friday, and will Canada respond at all to the killing of the KXL pipeline? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau. Minister, good to have you on the program. I know they spoke about the pipeline on, on their call on Friday. Will there be any retaliatory response from the government about those 1,000 lost jobs, even, for example, a NAFTA challenge? Well, we'll be there for Albertans and uh, Saskatchewan workers. The Prime Minister did voice our disappointment. We've always supported uh, the Keystone Pipeline, and uh, we believe that we are a reliable energy partner for the United States, and we conveyed that message. Uh, the ambassador to Canada, uh, to the United States from Canada, said, we're just moving on. Is that it? Like, is, is it, that's dead, we're moving on? We will always uh, be a reliable energy partner for the United States. I will convey to my uh, counterpart, Anthony Blinken, uh, this week that we're disappointed uh, with respect to Keystone. And, uh, and at the same time, we're going to start building our relationship on other fronts. Another, okay, but Jason Kenney was just on the show. He said, what about sanctions or what about compensation, a NAFTA challenge? Is that even on the table? Will you start a NAFTA challenge or is the response going to be nothing? We will continue to convey that we are a reliable energy partner to the United States on many fronts and uh, that uh, we're very disappointed with the decision and uh, that is our position. We'll continue to maintain that position and we'll make it clear to the United States. But you made it clear and, and so, so, the, I, so I assume there's going to be no retaliatory response, no, no NAFTA challenge even, which is a bit baffling. What about in exchange for that? Uh, like in exchange for basically doing nothing about Keystone, and I know it was widely expected, did Canada and the Prime Minister extract a pro uh, promise from the new president to exempt Canada from by American provisions that the president has promised so Canadian companies are not shut out from bidding on huge U.S. projects. They did discuss that and, uh, and we uh, voiced our concern with respect to that because we have a very good trade deal with them, very integrated supply chains and that uh, this could possibly have some effects on Canada. And President Biden indicated that he was very sensitive to that and that the two countries would stay in touch so that there wouldn't be any unintended consequences with respect to are very strong and integrated supply chains. Does that, do we read into those kind of diplomatic words that we're gonna get a Canadian exemption? We will always uh, bring forward our interests and it's an ongoing thing. It existed with the previous administration. We move forward and we deal with each situation as it moves forward. And uh, our objective is to make sure 
that our neighbors to the south understand how tightly integrated our economies are. Some of the things we send to them already have American products in it. That's, um, that's how tightly integrated our right. supply chains are. And we'll convey those messages on a continuous basis. Right. But, but obviously, obviously we've seen them. They just killed a thousand jobs in Canada with the Keystone. What about China? Any movement from the president to help the two Michaels get out of the Chinese prison? Anything concrete emerge there? The Prime Minister and uh, President Biden did speak about that, and it's very clear that they share uh, our concerns with the fact that China has proceeded to what is an arbitrary detention, something which is unacceptable in modern diplomacy and relations between two countries. And I will be bringing this up with uh, Secretary Blinken this week. So we're hopeful that we will be able to have common ground with respect to the two Michaels, which is a top priority in our relations with China. Right. Will, will you be asking them to drop the charges against Meng Wanzhou? Is that something that is on the table? I will be working, uh, we will be working uh, with our uh, American counterparts to try to resolve this issue. And uh, we'll see how that develops in the coming weeks. Uh, I, I got to talk about vaccines, obviously. Um, you had the Premier of Ontario saying that Joe Biden should give Canada a million vaccines from the Kalamazoo Pfizer factory. I know they've got shortages in the United States as well. Was there any movement on sharing vaccines in the midst of this pandemic? So broadly speaking, yes, because the two top priorities of the two countries are defeating COVID-19 and restarting our economies. And there are areas of cooperation that are essential uh, with respect to defeating COVID-19, whether it touches on vaccine, whether it, it concerns us uh, crossing the border to provide medical help, for example, between Windsor and Detroit, uh, whether it's our border policy, uh, it's very, very clear that President Biden is seriously going to attack COVID-19. We share the same in right. common, so there are lots of potential areas of cooperation there. Okay, but let me just press you on that. Vaccines. We need vaccines. They've got factories that are making them. Is there any movement that we could get some more vaccines from the U.S.? Minister Anand is very engaged on this file, and we uh, keep all options open with respect to obtaining vaccines so that we can address Canadian needs, and that includes working with the United States, too. Uh, climate was a big issue, obviously. Will there be a North American-wide price on carbon? We've got a price on carbon. Will they? It's very clear that uh, President Biden has a very strong $2 trillion agenda with respect to climate change. We also have a very strong agenda with respect to climate change, and we are very, very eager to engage them on all sorts of things, such as zero emission uh, vehicles, uh, such as electric uh, power from Canada to the United States, and a host of other areas. So I think it's very promising. The details need to be worked out, but I think there's a very promising uh, North American, if you like, or Canada-U.S. relationship with respect to climate change. Just finally, one, one last thing, Minister Garneau. Um, uh, Julie Payette obviously resigned as the Governor General. You knew her from the space program. Um, did you ever warn Justin Trudeau, look, I've heard some things about Julie Payette uh, be, when she was so quickly appointed as the Governor General. Did you ever provide any warnings to her that, you know what, we should do a better vetting job? Let me just say that uh, at the time of the nomination, uh, the Prime Minister's office did ask me for some input, and I knew uh, Julie Payette in a previous life and a previous career, and I pointed out the fact that she was a very professional astronaut. She had represented Canada twice in space. That was the extent of my knowledge of, uh, of Ms. Payette, and that is what I conveyed to the Prime Minister's office uh, when I was asked about it. 
obviously all of us are concerned with making sure that uh, in the workplace there is respect and dignity between employers and employees and that is a, a very important message that comes out of this whole thing. Minister Marco, I got to leave it there but I very much appreciate you joining us. Thank you sir. My pleasure. Coming up, flame out. What is the political fallout from Julie Payette's sudden resignation as the Governor General under allegations of workplace harassment? What happens now? The scrum is next. Our special guest will be the former Heritage Minister, James Moore. Stay right here with Question Period. We're deeply concerned about what this meant for the workers, the fact that they had no recourse, they had no way to raise their concerns. And the report is very scathing in terms of the abuse and the harassment that they had to endure. This is very, very troubling. Well, it was a bad week for Prime Minister Trudeau. The Pfizer vaccine was stopped. We're getting none this week. The Keystone XL pipeline was canceled by Joe Biden. And then the Governor General, Julie Payette, resigned. She was Justin Trudeau's handpicked candidate. I guess bad things come in threes. How much responsibility does he bear for this terrible trifecta? And what does he need to do to repair the damage? To talk about that, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News is here. Steph Levitz, political reporter for the Canadian Press is here. And our special guest this round is the former Heritage Minister, James Moore. Uh, great to have you all here. And James Moore, I'll start with you. And let, let's start with the Governor General. Obviously, as a former Heritage Minister, you were involved with appointing David Johnston as the Governor General and setting up that committee, which the Trudeau government bypassed to make the appointment. So what was your reaction as Julie Payette flamed out? Not a surprise, but it's also not a time for schadenfreude or taking pleasure in other people's pain. I think this is bad for Canada. You know, I think for the past, let's say, six months, certainly through, you know, the drama of the U.S. presidential election, I think a lot of Canadians have sort of looked south to the United States with quite a bit of arrogance and self-righteousness about the disorder down there. But look, you know, Canadians should take no great satisfaction in the state of affairs that we find ourselves in broadly right now in Canada. We have a massive health crisis. We have an economic crisis. An economic crisis is getting worse as a result of the Keystone XL pipeline and other things. Vaccines are not moving forward in the pace that Canadians expect. And now we have one of the key pillar institutions of Canada where we look for staid, sturdy leadership at, 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 uh, in, in troubling times is now in a complete state of disarray. And the office of the governor general is not just symbolic. Four out of the last six uh, elections in Canada have yielded minority parliaments. And the office of the governor general needs to be a substantive post filled by a substantive person of emotional and substantive stability so that in case we have a crisis, we can reliably know that the office will be staffed by someone who can handle uh, some crises that may come down the pike. And it's like all that has been knocked sideways in a very destabilizing week for the country. Uh, Steph Levitz, uh, so who owns this? Is this? Does Justin Trudeau own this? And if so, what are the political damages here? What this goes to is Justin Trudeau's judgment. And this idea, you know, what is the role of the Governor General? As James says, it's not, it's not symbolic. It has heft to it. But what Justin Trudeau did when he made his decision about who to put in there, he focused a lot more on the symbolism. It was a choice that seemed to fit the narrative his government was very much advancing in 2017. But even if we set that aside, let's just talk about, you know, some of the choices Justin Trudeau has been making throughout his tenure as Prime Minister that speak to his judgment. He is the man chosen to lead this country by, we can argue, the vast majority of voters at the moment. And <clears throat> 
If he's picking a person who cannot run the office of Rideau Hall, and not only that, but when problems started being brought forward almost immediately, what steps did he take to try and rectify them? Rectify them. If Julie Payette, as some people say, wasn't suited for the role, well, was any effort ever made to help her out, to give her some kind of training, to give her some kind of support, to deal with the HR issues as they arose to maintain that stability? And it doesn't seem like there was, and that is all on the Prime Minister. Uh, Joyce, when you look at it, now we got this $400,000 report that we haven't seen, but Dominic Albon tells us we'll see it this week, probably in a redacted version. Uh, it's going to outline, obviously, allegations that were severe enough for a governor general uh, to resign. What do you think the political cost of this is? Well, I, I, I agree with, with Stephanie. The prime minister wears this. I mean, he decided to uh, ignore the committee that was set up by the Conservatives, and that did a really good job. Uh, it yielded uh, David Johnston, a much beloved uh, Governor General, a man who did the job spectacularly well. So she had big, big shoes to fill. We're talking now how important this role is, but for three and a half years, we had someone who was abusive seemingly abusive to, to the staff, uh, refused to do a lot of the things uh, that governor generals do, a lot of the public things that governor generals do and are required to do. Mm. Uh, that's the job description. She uh, accepted a job and then decided to change it completely. So if she was able for three and a half years right. to hold that office, I ask how relevant is it really? Last question on you on this one, James Moore. What now? I mean, the government hasn't said they're going to reestablish the committee. Uh, I know that the Chief Justice is now in charge of those duties, but, you know, we're in a minority parliament. The government could fall. How quickly do you think they should choose someone and anyone come to mind? Yeah, they can do something, I think, probably... I. I would put it in four to six weeks maximum, but look, time genuinely is of the essence. Parliament comes back, very highly anticipated federal budget is coming, a slew of confidence votes are coming. There, Everybody anticipates that there could very well be an election this spring. And I think Canadians, whether there's an election or not, Canadians think that there may well be, and, they, and it demands stability. I mean, my view is that they should call David Johnston, the previous uh, Governor General, and ask him to come back for uh, for 12 to 18 months and to presume his old office and provide some stability. He would immediately have cross-partisan support because he's done the job under yeah. both Liberal and Conservative governments. He's overseen the transition from a Conservative to a Liberal government. He's cultured, thoughtful, bilingual. He, he knows the role. Walt Natinchuk is another name that comes to mind. There are There's a roster of former lieutenant governors from provinces across the country who have done the job well. So I think it's a post that they can fill on an interim basis with a person of substance and decency who will have cross-partisan support and the confidence of Canadians. Hmm. David Johnson, former hockey player, likes to play overtime. Maybe he gets another shot at it. Uh, Steph, let me go to the other big story of the week, the vaccine story. Uh, now we know that Canada will get zero doses of the coveted Pfizer vaccine this week. Lots of countries, by the way, will also have delays as they retool that factory in Belgium. But now we also find out that the supply for about a month will drop by uh, about a, uh, more than a fifth less than we thought. So is this, just, is this something that the Prime Minister wears? Or is this just the, I don't know, the reality of a global scarcity of supply that Canada's got to, you know, sadly have to deal with? It, I 
It's both things. I mean, can it be both at the same time? Because the reality is the Prime Minister and throughout, I think, the narrative of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Prime Minister has sometimes tried to project certainty where things are so uncertain. And one has to wonder now, there are repeated claims about, you know, the number of doses we were getting. Everyone is going to be vaccinated by September. Well, a lot of that was out of his control. And so, you know, as a, for example, when we talk about the number of vaccine doses that are going to be here by the end of March, that line alone makes it sound like we've got doses coming every day and that way Pfizer will fulfill their contract. But in reality, Pfizer could de deliver every single one of those doses on March the 30th and still comply with their contract. And so we have to take a step back here. Lots of folks are pinning the hopes that they have for 2020 on this vaccine. The rollout is being tragically, tragically delayed because also at the end of the day, these are lives we are talking about. Elderly citizens in long-term care who are not getting these vaccines, they will die in the interim. And just to keep suggesting, as the government does, that it'll all be fine, it'll all work out, it's not fine right now, and they should own that. Uh Joyce, you want to weigh in on the vaccine shortage or, uh, as Rick Hillier called it on our program earlier, the vaccine drought? Well, it is a drought. And I mean, I don't know if this government or any other government, whether liberal or conservative, uh, can be blamed for that. We're finding out so many things every day. We're finding out about these variants. We're finding out about whether the first dose is as effective as we thought at the beginning. There's going to be setbacks. Um, I think that we have to look at this as the long game and not the short game. Um, other countries are suffering the same fate as Canada in the delays. Uh, we're not unique in this. All right, I got to leave it there. James Moore, Steph Levitz, Joyce Napier. Great to have the three of you on the program. But when we come back, a trade war with the U.S. as Jason Kenney wants. How will Canada respond to the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline? We come back next with the senior editor of The Atlantic Magazine, David Frum, and the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, to break it all down. Stay right here with Question Period. It's not always going to be uh, perfect alignment with the United States. That's the case with uh, any given uh, president. Uh, but uh, in a situation where we are much more aligned on values, on focus, on the work that needs to be done to give opportunities for everyone while we build a better future, uh, I'm very much looking forward to working with President Biden. Well, the Biden time in office has started, and the new president didn't bide any time taking a shot at Canada, killing the Keystone XL pipeline. Look, that was no surprise. Joe Biden had campaigned on that, but he did it quickly. And it does mean that the bromance between Joe Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau, which was rekindled on their Friday night phone call, comes with a downside. What are other challenges Canada might face under a Biden administration? What about things like a Buy American strategy? To talk about all that, the scrum is back. Andy Bergeron-Oliver is a correspondent with CTV News. She's been in Washington to cover the inauguration. Plus, David Frum, of course, former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, now a senior editor at The Atlantic and a best-selling author. And Bruce Heyman is the former U.S. ambassador to Canada under President Barack Obama and knows Joe Biden well. Great to have all of you here. Um, luckily, there's no news to talk about. I'll start with you, Ambassador Heyman. Um, look. Premier Kenny was just on this program, and you know him well. He wants Canada to slap sanctions on the U.S. in the wake of the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, essentially start a trade war. He's worried that the Biden administration will kill other pipelines and, and hurt the Canadian energy sector. What signal was Joe Biden sending so early in his term that he, he would send, kill that pipeline? 
So the signal is the same signal he sent during the campaign, the same signal that they sent during the Obama-Biden administration, is that that is not acceptable. And so this is, shouldn't be surprising news to anyone. This has been telegraphed for years. Um, and so then we get to who the cabinet is and who the appointees are, and you quickly realize they're all the people who were there who were critical in making the first decision. And so then you also know that they're focused on climate change. And so with all of that, this is not surprising. And it is unfortunate for those people that are impacted. I, I feel for people who are impacted by decisions of government or business or otherwise that people lose their jobs. And it, it is unfortunate. But this should not define the U.S.-Canada relationship. It didn't define it when Barack Obama canceled it in early in, uh, early in Justin Trudeau's tenure. And we went on to have one of the most productive periods of time with the Obama-Trudeau uh, relationship. And so I believe that we were going to be in that same, a very similar period of time with a lot more challenging issues ahead of us. Dave, from what are the main challenges to Canada posed by a Biden administration? Look, it's not going to be the same unpredictability as Donald Trump. I appreciate that. But there will be challenges. What do you think they'll be? Right. I mean, we're, we're moving from a relationship um, that it is um, that was sociopathic to one that is going to be imperfect. And so that's obviously an improvement for everybody. But imperfect is real. Um, we are now back to the normal range of, of divides. Um, one of the, I think, of the, the probably the, the, the biggest envelope of, of concerns is this. Uh, the Biden administration um, will be more or at least President Biden has signaled it will be, more protectionist than previous Democratic administrations, more protectionist than the Obama administration, certainly more protectionist than the Clinton administration. Historically, Canada has been reasonably successful at getting carves out, carve-outs yeah. for Canada from American protectionism. But that's not really what Canada needs. Canada needs an, uh, an America that trades in peace with the world. I mean, it doesn't do you much good if the Americans say, look, Canadian products, come on in, just so long as you don't have any components from anywhere outside of Canada. Um, and Canada also needs um, to bring NAFTA into the 21st century, into the internet era. NAFTA was designed before there, there was an internet, before goods and services moved digitally. You need a framework for that. That opportunity was lost during the Trump years where Trump just used NAFTA, his thin rewrite of NAFTA to insert more automobile protectionism. Uh, but Biden has said he doesn't want to do major new trade deals. Well, NAFTA needs a major overhaul for the digital economy. And that looks like it's not going to happen. So protectionist impulses are going to be a problem, not only against Canada, but against the world. Yeah, that Buy American stuff, and when he's trying to rebuild that economy. And the other element is on foreign policy. Um, obviously, the big issue for Canada, not just China, but specifically the two Michaels, who have been well over two years in that prison and the Meng Wanzhou situation, any light on that that might be different under Biden than under Trump? Well, you know, we are returning to a more traditional diplomatic relationship with Biden, for far more predictable. And Biden has talked about the fact that he wants to repair relationships with allies. He mentioned that in his inaugural speech. So him reaching out to other allies on a first step basis may be a chance that he'll be able to talk about the two Michaels and bring sort of fresh eyes to this crisis. Um, but we have to remember, too, that a lot of people are predicting that Biden's main focus is going to be domestic, at least for the first few years. Not only does he 
have a unity crisis looking at how many Republicans, 60 to 70 percent, are estimated to still believe that this election was stolen from Donald Trump. He also has the COVID-19 crisis to deal with. You know, he just put in, in place an executive order that invokes the Defense Production Act. How is that going to potentially right. impact Canada's ability to maybe work with U.S. manufacturers? So, you know, is that going to be a focus at repairing the relationship with Canada? Perhaps not, as many are saying. You know, he needs to focus on the economy. He needs to focus on the social and racial inequalities and very, you know, foremost, COVID-19. Well, look, all politics is domestic. I get it. But the United States also has a big stick on foreign policy, Bruce Heyman. And let me just get back to you. And Annie enumerated it. Obviously, there's bi-American protectionism, then there's China, and then there's COVID and climate. These are going to be the dominant issues. How does Canada sort of benefit from that in this Biden administration? So we partner together. All of those problems that you've just laid out are not problems that are uniquely solved within any one country. They are problems that are shared across borders. And we're going to have to work together on solving those problems. The other thing is, and while I agree with Annie that a lot of focus has to be at first domestically, the world still goes on and there are things happening. And I think that it's an important opportunity for the Canadian government to align with the United States to take a position where they can act in concert with the United States, but also take a lead role in some respects in NATO, in, in, in the WHO, in other world organizations that we all work on together. Uh, David, let me just get a little more domestically involved because uh, people are going to look this week and see, okay, impeachment hearings in the Senate are going to begin against Donald Trump. And just explain that. Does that become a drag on the Biden agenda as there's a kind of Trump undertow there that's dragging him back? Um, it does burn minutes. Uh, the, the, the minutes in the, those first weeks of a new administration are very precious. Um, and nobody would choose to have this to be a way to start a new administration. Um, but you do have to deal with this problem. It's a problem for the Democrats in that it consumes time. It makes the country more polarized. It's a problem for the Republicans, though, too, because, of course, um, if you could do this on a secret ballot, there are many Republicans who would vote to convict. On a public ballot, it's much more difficult for them. Donald Trump um, has done a lot of damage to the Republican Party. Look, Mitch McConnell, the one job in life, he's told so many people this, the one job in life he ever wanted was to be Senate Majority Leader. And now he's not, because Donald Trump threw away those two seats in Georgia. We'll see what happens there. Obviously, the COVID crisis still remains the dominant uh, challenge for every government. Uh, around the world. Uh, David Frum, Bruce Heyman, Andy Bergeron, Oliver, great to have all of you here. And I'm sure the next great export to Canada will be those Bernie Sanders mittens that he wore on inauguration day. They look pretty cozy. That's question period for this week. Thanks for watching. Uh, we'll be back here tomorrow on CTV's Power Play. I'll see you at 5 p.m. Eastern. And question period will be back in seven short days. Take good care, hug your loved ones, and we'll see you soon.